The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Nanaba Duncan, in for Brent Banbury. This is Day 6. It's not pink core, it's Barbie core. Barbie's having such a big moment. There's not a corner of the globe that hasn't turned pink. For some reason, the color pink really makes you feel empowered. It's fun to, to dress up like Barbie. She is the OG style icon. Go Barbie or go home. Why the Barbie core aesthetic is having a moment. That's coming up on Day 6. Today, what migrants risk crossing the Rio Grande. We're seeing multiple deaths per day. And why they keep trying anyway. He prosecuted George Floyd's killers. This is where determination and grit come in. Now Keith Ellison is navigating the backlash. And hot wings, hot seat. The whole point of celebrity is to put yourself out there. The YouTube shows that reinvented celebrity interviews. All today on Day 6. The Scoville Standard Edition. You can go back to your regular life, or you can know the truth about the universe. The choice is now yours. The first one, the high heel. I get it. Sometimes the high heel is the better choice. And if you're one of the people who flocked to see Barbie on opening night, there's a good chance you put some serious thought into your outfit. Pink. Lots and lots of pink. But I also think it looks very vibrant, bold, and of all things, I think playful. And if your outfit was bold and sparkly and pink, then whether you knew it or not, you were wearing Barbie core. Barbie core is about being the main character, standing out and really embracing your childhood in a fashion sense. The term Barbie core is new. But the look has been popping up every few years since the early 2000s. Think Paris Hilton or Elle Woods from Legally Blonde. Early Barbiecore icons were often belittled for their hyper-girliness. For years, the look was pop culture shorthand for a woman who's vacant and shallow. But today's Barbiecore fans reject that idea. For people like Lizzo and Saweetie and Florence Pugh, Pink can be a powerful way to take up space. And it turns out the empowerment many people find in Barbie core might be built into our brain's wiring. Shakela Forbes-Bell is a fashion psychologist and the author of Big Dress Energy. Shakela, welcome to Day 6. Hi, Nanaba. Lovely to meet you. So, Shakela, what do you find appealing about Barbie core? I love that it's not about taking yourself too seriously and... It's almost like the fashion equivalent of escapism. You know, in your day-to-day lives, we see a lot of people wearing very muted tones, very minimalist clothes, very basic. And embracing Barbie core is like dressing outside of the box. And research has shown that those types of clothes actually carry a tension release dimension because they allow you to escape maybe your typical life. They allow you to experience something almost otherworldly. It's like you're stepping into a different character. You're allowing yourself to have fun with fashion. And consequently, you're having fun in your day to day because you're dressing the part. 
So one thing about all this is that it's based on Barbie. Uh, we're both black women. Yes. And Barbie wasn't originally made with us in mind, but we all still played with her. So what was your experience? I would definitely say growing up, my mom did make a conscious effort to try to hunt down black dolls. She understood the importance of having that reflection. Um, and I knew, yes, growing up, the choices were limited. Barbie was a thin, blonde woman. Um, but now as we've grown up, we are seeing such a difference. We are seeing Mattel um, being very intentional about being inclusive and about being diverse. I was speaking earlier about my niece. She's eight years old. And the amount of options that she has is just amazing. She can see herself reflected in these dolls. She has options. Even people with different abilities or different body types, they are now being reflected in these dolls. And I think that's just speaking to where we are now, where people are understanding the value of being seen and feeling that you're represented, especially as something that's hailed as like the standard of beauty and of just like everything fun and everything vibrant and exuberant, seeing yourself reflected in that. It's going to have a positive impact on the way you feel and the way you see yourself. So I'm just, I'm so happy that we've come to this point now. It sounds like you're saying Barbie core can be for everyone, but can that really be true if you are not like Barbie, if you're not cisgender, if you uh, have a visible disability or if you don't have her proportions or if you're bigger than her? I think now we are seeing a lot of people invested in Barbie core. It's not just a typical people that maybe we've seen in the past. We've seen people of all shapes, sizes, backgrounds, even different people with different gender expressions being involved with Barbie core. And I think that's brilliant because that actually speaks to an interesting study that I've been talking about. It was conducted on Japanese men and it was seeing how they feel when they are wearing pink versus blue. And the results found that only men with a low sense of self and a low self-esteem feel that pink is more feminine but men with a higher sense of self-esteem actually feel more powerful when wearing pink and the researchers also concluded that because pink and wearing pink actually can improve the way you feel about different gender stereotypes and these archaic gender norms they think that increased availability of pink in men's clothing can help like get rid of some of these gender stereotypes and these restrictions so in a sense pink is quite powerful and barbecue can be very like quite revolutionary and i think it's brilliant that even if you go on social media you're seeing a lot of different people taking it up and again it's because of the power of pink as such a beautiful expressive color and barbecue itself as being such a such an empowering style when you look up the hashtag BarbieCore and you see the images, you will see lots of pink, of course, and uh, hyper femininity. You would see uh, girly girl styles. And by that, I mean bows and uh, frills and the word frou-frou comes to mind. A lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people who wear it today see it as, as a feminist statement. What do you think of that? I think that's really interesting. I think, of course, pink has a history of being associated just with femininity and, you know, with girl, with girliness. But like I mentioned in that previous study, a lot of people are seeing that, you know, it's not just limited to women or people who um, identify themselves as women. It is becoming more inclusive. And I think people now are realizing that 
being maybe seeing yourself as being very powerful and independent and seeing yourself as a feminist, it doesn't look one way. You don't have to dress in that kind of 80s power dressing, you know, those big shoulder pads in order to be seen as being like a serious person or a serious woman. You know, that idea of you having to have broad shoulders to mimic the broadness of a male in order to be taken seriously. That's very archaic. That's been done with. You can be very um, empowered by wearing whatever you choose to express yourself in. And that includes wearing lots of pink and a lot of bows and being very frou-frou, you know? I think we're starting to realize that people obviously are going to make judgments on you based on how you're dressing, but it's less about that. And it's more about how you feel and how you want to show up in the world. You know, we don't have to purely define ourselves by how we're dressing and we can use our clothes to express the all the different sides to us. Is there a reason for why, I mean, besides movie marketing, for why this trend is taking off now? I do think it's because people are realizing that the images that we were seeing, especially of women, um, it was very limited. And I think this is the whole thing about, you know, this third, fourth wave of feminism that we're in now is that we as women can define who we want to be. And people are not limited to certain stereotypes and they're not put in a box. I really hate the idea of having like a signature style. I think that almost puts us in a position of cartoon characters, like being very like one dimensional you know I always say that you're not a cartoon character you're a multifaceted person one day I might be very much into my girly girly but the other another day I might feel very androgynous and I might feel you know I want to be tough and I want to reflect that and I think now people are really embracing the fact that they can use their clothes as a tool almost of transformation um, and and just a beautiful way to express all the different sides to them because it speaks to people at their core that yeah people might think this about me but there's so much more beneath the surface. So if somebody wanted to dip their toe into barbiecore, uh, but maybe they're not an adventurous dresser, how would you yeah. suggest they start? I always say accessories. Accessories are your best friend. Like if I'm feeling maybe a bit drab and I just want to wear black or um, to like in one day because I'm feeling a bit like, oh, I just want to keep it things minimal. I'll throw in a pair of my, my pink glasses. And that gives me a little bit of, you know, a little bit of something, a little bit of an edge or um, some sunglasses or jewelry, little things that help to express the unique side of you. And maybe might be a bit more bold if you're a bit scared to embrace the full pink wardrobe accessories, handbags, scarves, hair clips, anything, even makeup, that can be your way of just stabbing a little bit of barbecue, a little bit of playfulness into your wardrobe. Shakela, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Lovely speaking with you. Shakela Forbes-Bell is a fashion psychologist and the author of Big Dress Energy. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. People living near the St. Croix River system in Nova Scotia are being told to evacuate their homes because a dam near Windsor is at risk of breaching. Windsor is about 60 kilometers northwest of Halifax. Torrential rain has swamped much of Nova Scotia. There is a risk of severe flooding in many places and highways have flooded over. Yesterday, the closing ceremony for the North American Indigenous Games in Halifax was canceled and more rain is expected today. And we'll make sure we're a hard team to beat. And I think that's a critical component of our identity. The FIFA Women's World Cup is on and the expectations are high for Canada. The U.S. team is once again the favorite to win. But the Canadian team is feeling strong coming off their first ever gold medal at the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. 
Off the field, the players have an ongoing labor dispute with the sport's governing body. They say Canada soccer has failed to support the national women's team like it does the national men's. The team went on strike briefly in February before Canada soccer's threats of legal action forced them back on the pitch. Canada tied its first match against Nigeria. The team's next match is Wednesday against Ireland. Still to come on day six, the risks asylum seekers take as they try to cross into Texas and why so many of them keep trying anyway. I'm Nanaba Duncan, in for Brent Bambury. We're at record numbers of migration right now. It's a relentless sauce. It's like getting your heart broken for the first time. <laughs> you think There's no you'll way to never, stop the hurt. You think you'll never get out of it. Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of just kind of stay with it? Yeah, you just stick with it. You know, find yourself a nice friend exactly. who will support you through it. And I'm right here. I'm right and here with you. I'm right one here day, with you. You wake up and you're like, oh, hey, it doesn't hurt as much. You know what? That still sounds like it hurts. That's actor Simu Liu eating spicy chicken wings on a YouTube show called Hot Ones. It's hosted by Sean Evans, and the idea is pretty simple. He challenges celebrities to eat increasingly spicy chicken wings while sitting in the hot seat for an interview. And he's not the only one doing this kind of thing. Amelia de Moldenberg hosts another YouTube series called Chicken Shop Date, and she invites celebrities to eat fried chicken while imitating a first date. One of her recent first dates was with singer Shania Twain. Would you ever like to go to space? No. What about you? I'd rather go on holiday, like somewhere closer, like Japan. It scares me anyway. Yeah, could be aliens. No, I'm not worried about that. They'd probably be a fan. <laughs> Both shows are getting millions of views on YouTube, and they've become essential stops for celebrities making the PR rounds, which seems kind of weird at first. I think there's just something universal about chicken, almost. No matter where you go in the world, there's a chance you can find at least a half-decent place selling fried chicken. Kaylee Donaldson is a pop culture writer and critic based in Scotland. We asked her why these shows are taking off right now. But I think that these two shows, Chicken Shop Date and Hot Ones, are two sides of the same coin. They're taking this process that we're all very familiar with, which is the celebrity interview, the, the promotional cycle, and putting their own unique spin on it. And it helps that they're both done by people who are extremely dedicated to the bit. Sean Evans, on top of being an incredibly good interviewer who asks questions that a lot of celebrities are surprised by, you hear a lot of celebrities congratulate him on his research, but he's also doing the challenge with them. This man has a stomach of iron, but he is at least on some level suffering with the celebrities. I'm really having a rough time. I feel you, Pete. I feel you, Pete. I'm gonna do it, but uh, I might pass out. Well, I'm right here with you. And then with Chicken Shop Date, you have the almost like a parody of the fluffy celebrity interview. It takes that fantasy that I think everyone has had. What if you went on a date with your favourite celebrity and subverts it just enough to bring the humour, to bring the charm and to let the celebrity in question have fun with the concept if they are on the, the level of Amelia de Monderberg, which not all of them are. I make people nervous, fine. You do, it's, we're on a date. It's nervous. Dates is scary. Yeah. I'm actually surprised that shows like this haven't happened earlier. I think that Hot Ones and Chicken Shop Date have become such a big deal online because they have offered the best version of the celebrity promotional cycle that we really have right now. 
if you are a singer or an actor or something, you are typically contractually bound to promote the thing you're in. And that usually means print interviews, going on talk shows, doing the red carpet and stuff. It's a very samey and often really boring cycle, both for the person participating in it and the fans watching. And when you're watching Hot Ones or Chicken Shop Date, it's so fascinating to see not only these celebrities having a really good time, but in the case of Hot Ones, being asked really substantive questions and really being engaged in the process in a way that is now increasingly rare. So you really do feel like you're getting a whole new side to your favourite celebrity compared to, say, watching them on The Tonight Show. You probably care. It's great. Well, I, I yeah, love that. You know, I do, you know? And I think it's only right, you know, if we're going to have you jump through this hoop, we got to jump through a couple ourselves. Yeah, but you don't have to. You don't have to care as much as you do. I think that the barrier between fan and celebrity creator, etc., has gotten a lot thinner over the past several years, in large part because of social media and in large part because there are greater internet-based demands and requirements that celebrities have to engage with. So with things like Hot Ones, Chicken Shop Date, but also just the general online celebrity promotional cycle, there is a greater demand for a, a realness, whether or not it is actually authentic, just a sense of you being a real person. I think that at this moment in pop culture, there is such a heavy focus on approachability, but also a general sense of familiarity with celebrities. We really are in this system where we want people to be, even if they are wildly famous and rich and gorgeous and talented and very clearly of a different level, we want them to seem real to us. And whether that comes from crying because you ate too much hot chicken or flirting with a TV show host or telling really revealing stories about yourself, there is something about that that I think people are really hungry for. The whole point of celebrity is to put yourself out there to be consumed, uh, figuratively and maybe literally. Kaylee Donaldson is a pop culture writer and critic. the Texas Department of Public Safety under investigation after concerning claims that troopers, and in some cases, the Texas National Guard, were directed to push migrants back into the Rio Grande River and deny them water in the scorching heat. On Monday, the Houston Chronicle reported that Texas state troopers have allegedly been ordered to push asylum seekers back into the Rio Grande River, even if they're children. The report is based on an email sent by a trooper to the Texas Department of Public Safety. We decided this was not the correct thing to do with the very real potential of exhausted people drowning. Governor Greg Abbott's office has denied the allegations and the substance of the email is currently under investigation. Immigration is typically a federal issue, but Governor Abbott has taken a hard line against asylum seekers trying to cross the border into Texas. There are kilometers of razor wire along the shore of the Rio Grande and giant buoys down the center of the river intended as a deterrent. Texas has also sent busloads of asylum seekers to states governed by Democrats without giving any advance notice. According to the Washington office on Latin America, at least 10 people have died trying to cross into Texas so far this month. 
The Washington Office on Latin America is an NGO focused on human rights in the Americas, and Adam Isaacson is their Director for Defense Oversight. Adam, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. When you heard about the alleged orders to state troopers in Texas, what did you think? I was pretty horrified. I mean, it's not unusual, sadly, to hear about migrants being mistreated or harmed by policies at the U.S.-Mexico border. But to see a direct order to harm individual people uh, in a way that is plainly illegal was pretty – it's rare uh, and, frankly, horrifying. Now, people have died crossing this border. How many deaths have you documented and how are they dying? Well, since 1998, uh, the Border Patrol reports having recovered about 9,500 remains of human beings on the U.S. side of the border. Uh, just last year, at least 890. So the, the rate is actually increasing. Uh, and the you know, local organizations, where there are local organizations that look for bodies, they always find more than Border Patrol does, so that the humanitarian crisis could be much greater. The most common causes of death are dehydration and extreme heat exposure, sometimes cold exposure because it's cold in the desert at night. That is followed by uh, drownings in the Rio Grande or in irrigation canals. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, we're seeing more and more falls from the, the border wall, which became taller during the Trump years. And this is what you write about in your weekly update on the situation right. at the Texas border. Can you tell us more about the safety situation? Uh, the summer is particularly bad because we're in an El Nino year with uh, very vicious heat waves, uh, both in northern Mexico and the southern United States. And we're seeing multiple deaths per day happening. But it's also the result of, you know, deliberate policy choices, really going back to the 1990s during mm -hmm. the, the Bill Clinton administration, when it was decided that we needed to build more barriers and what ended up being a quintupling of the size of our border patrol over, over 20 years. With that greater security presence in areas of relatively easy crossing, the idea was something that our policymakers called prevention through deterrence. If we could make the experience miserable and riskier enough and drive people to more remote areas, the theory was that they would be less likely to come. Mm. In fact, we're at record numbers of migration right now. There's been no deterrence, but there has been a lot more death. I was just going to say, I mean, it's so obviously not an easy journey. It's very, very difficult. So why would someone choose this path instead of the formal immigration process? The, the formal immigration process in the United States just doesn't offer a lot of pathways, uh, especially if you are not from, you know, a, a European, Northern European or, or other North American country. Uh, there is very little in the way of work visas. Um, the pathways to residency are processes that can take uh, 20 years or more. Uh, there are income requirements. If you're regarded as being too poor, you're more likely uh, to never be able to get here, even as a tourist. Mm -hmm. So there, there's not much there uh, for you. One way in, though, is if you can set foot on U.S. soil, I'm sure it's the same under Canadian law, you have the right to ask for asylum if you can prove that you fear for your life 
or your safety because of your, your ethnicity, race, political opinion, membership in a particular social group. That likelihood of having an asylum case in the United States uh, has become something of a draw as well. People come here, ask for protection, and the system has gotten so backlogged that your court date may not be until 2028 or later. Uh, and then, of course, word gets out that you can be here in the United States for a few years uh, while you await your court date, and that becomes a draw as well, but it is the only pathway at this moment. And uh, recent policy changes here in the United States have tried to limit that pathway as well. And who are the people that are trying to cross the border right now? Why are they seeking asylum in the U.S.? It's remarkable. The, the population of people trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border has changed drastically in the last 10 years. Until about 10 years ago, chances are somebody crossing the border was going to be a Mexican adult citizen traveling by themselves without children. Mm -hmm. uh, nowadays, it's at least one third children and families. Some of those children arrive unaccompanied. Um, many of the adults uh, are also seeking asylum as well. And the difference between an asylum seeker and a migrant who just wants to not be caught and, and find a work in the United States, an asylum seeker is actually, they cross the border and stand there or just actively look for somebody to whom they can turn themselves in. There's no pursuit involved. They're trying to turn themselves in. And that is a, a, a sort of a, a change that our, our border agencies are still getting used to. Another big change is that they're not just Mexican and they're not just Central American anymore. Sometime in the early or middle of the pandemic, what used to be an impenetrable barrier between Colombia and Panama, a jungle region called the Darien Gap, began being used uh, for overland migration. And now fully one third of people coming to the border are from the Andes many of them uh, uh, crossing overland and going all the way through Central America and Mexico after crossing the Darien. That is new. And we're seeing ever larger numbers of people from China, India, Afghanistan, uh, Turkey, uh, and other countries who mainly are flying to South America and then taking that overland route. And the governor of Texas has taken a hard line uh, to deter and repel these asylum seekers. Uh, why has he done that? Um, in our Republican Party and on our political right in general, uh, especially since Donald Trump was elected, uh, there is a widespread belief that asylum seekers are, and this is not my word, that they're scammers or invaders. They're people who are trying to find a shortcut around the regular migration process, which of course, as I said, has no pathways for them, or they're lying about uh, their, their threats and they have found some magical way to enter the United States. So Abbott's, Governor Abbott's uh, proposed solution is to use razor wire and other barriers, uh, as well as deployments of troops to keep asylum seekers from even touching U.S. soil, even if it means trying to encourage them to get back in the river. That's actually contrary to U.S. law, but if you hold to a belief that we are under, and again, the word they use, an invasion of children and families and others seeking protection, then those are the measures you're going to take. I guess we see similar things happening in places like the Mediterranean, but we have a big, uh, a big tendency within our own political system to view it this way. So what happens to the people who are turned away? If you are turned, well, there's several ways of, of turning away. Many are deported. They put you on a plane back to your country. Um, 
many of them face, do face threats once they do get back. If a country like Honduras or uh, El Salvador or Mexico has a huge gang problem and people get preyed upon, they're believed to have money when they come back. And so they get extorted quite often. Many, many, uh, just as soon as they get off the plane, uh, hook up with a, a smuggler and immediately try again. And then there are others, human rights groups like uh, our colleagues at Human Rights First have documented tens of thousands of assaults, kidnappings, rapes, and other horrible things that have happened to non-Mexicans who have been sent back into Mexico. Hmm. Adam, thank you. Thank you for having me. Adam Isaacson is the Director for Defense Oversight with the Washington Office on Latin America. I started loving nudes because there was a gap in the market for um, skin tone products for black women and women of color. That's Chantal Carter. She is the founder of a Canadian lingerie company called Love and Nudes. It makes bras and underwear in dark skin tone colors. And some time ago, Chantal had an unsettling thought. I said to myself, like, what is the point of the bras if there aren't these black women and women of color to wear them? because of this breast cancer issue. Chantel had come across a staggering statistic from the U.S. Black women are 40% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women. They're also more likely to die from the disease when they're younger. This kind of data isn't routinely collected in Canada, but we do know that black women are less likely to get screened for breast cancer. You know, the face of breast cancer is not usually black women and women of color. When you look into information about uh, symptoms, it's, it's usually white. And the trouble with that is that those symptoms look different on darker skin than they do on lighter skin. A lot of the times when we hear about discoloration in the medical field, they usually talk about redness. Well, if your skin is dark, it probably won't show up as redness. So what does that look like on dark skin without having to guess? So Chantal teamed up with an oncologist and a makeup artist to create the look. She and her team then put it on silicone cups that attach on top of bras and serve as a screening tool. It's called the Stage Zero Collection. The bra attachments, they're a silicone-based, soft texture to touch, and they, they can attach onto a, a bra, and then you can simulate or you can practice uh, touching and feeling and really examining for like skin texture, discoloration, and what the lumps and bumps feel like. You can also hold it in your hand and feel it. We connected with um, an oncologist, Dr. Majola Omoli. She was an integral part of showing us what the signs and symptoms look like, feel like, to help us create this product. And they come in four different uh, skin tone colors. A makeup artist actually that works in special effects makeup helped to paint what the discoloration looks like on the four different skin tone colors. We wanted to create something and see like what the interest 
what the interest was about it and so far it's been pretty exciting but I want to back that up with uh, with uh, quantitative data as well and get these produced the goal is to have them available uh, through love and nudes and um, with other associations as well having distribution channels for them like maybe like through a pharmacy being used in schools as an educational resource donating them to marginalized communities so people can have access to the information they need to help empower them for their health we also uh, decided to create a petition to lower the breast cancer screening age from age 50 to 40 in Canada, especially because black women have a double mortality rate under the age of 50. Creating the petition and the having the bra attachments as a uh, preventative measure, it was like a dream come true. A dream come true to help our community thrive, survive and thrive. We can't wait on other people to do things for us. And as a black woman, this could be affecting me, my family has affected friends, and um, I think that um, if I can do something about it, I will gladly roll up my sleeves and take that on. Chantal Carter is the founder of Love and Nudes Intimates. That story first aired in March. Still to come on day six, rift from the headlines, and your chance to win a day six tote bag. A Canadian journalist infiltrates an international network of violent extremists. They don't care who they maim or hurt or kill. White supremacists who want to spark a race war and incite the collapse of society. Embrace the chaos! And from its ashes, a new world shall rise to victory, white man! I'm Michelle Shepard, and I'll take you inside this movement to learn where it came from and where it's headed next. White Hot Hate. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Nanaba Duncan, in for Brent Banbury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app. We're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day 6. Three years ago this summer, protests raged across the United States and around the world in response to the police killing of George Floyd. The scale of the protests was unprecedented. And as they were going on, Minnesota Governor Tim Walz asked Keith Ellison to oversee the prosecution of the officers responsible. Keith Ellison is Minnesota's Attorney General. He's a former U.S. Congress member and a longtime civil rights lawyer. And throughout the whole prosecution, he kept a diary. That diary is now a book called Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. Keith Ellison, good morning and welcome to Day 6. Hey, good morning, Nanawa. Good to be with you. Thank you. So when you first saw that video of the final minutes of George Floyd's life, that was three years ago. What was that moment like for you? 
Well, you know, um, I'll never forget it. Um, when I first saw it, um, I was both uh, shocked, dismayed, and at the same time struck with this sense that here we go again. You know, mm. frustration on the endlessness of state-sponsored violence against African-Americans and at the same time just this utter, like, slack-jawed shock mm. and, you know, surprise. And then, you know, my emotions began to, to shift. Um, I saw it, then I resaw it, then I played it again and again, and then I began to think to myself, wow, this just goes on and on, and he doesn't seem to care. The people are watching him. He seems impervious to the suffering of George Floyd. He, he seems to be wanting to defy the people calling for George Floyd's life, trying to almost prove to them that he can just sit there on George Floyd's neck and just ride on his neck for as long as he wants to, uh, no matter what the people assembled said. So I had all those emotions, and I was experiencing them kind of in the same instant. Mm. I know a lot of us cried when we saw that video at first. When you cried, what was your reason? Uh, you know, quite honestly, I was just staring down at that video, and then I just felt, you know, moisture rolled on my face, and mm. then I noticed that uh, a splash on the face of my iPhone as I was watching this. And then I, you know, sort of reached up and wiped my face and noticed that I had tears that were coming out. It was sort of involuntary. I mean, I saw the splash before I realized that I was actually shedding tears in that moment. Um, that was early in the morning. It was up 4.45 in the morning. You know, I also remember very distinctly, like, rolling over and saying to my wife, honey, you got to see this. This is the most shocking thing. And my wife is uh, born in Colombia, so she knows what paramilitary violence, narco violence, government violence. She's familiar with that phenomena. She says, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that. I have seen that. I don't need to see that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people had different reactions. I mean, some people couldn't take their eyes off of it. Yeah. Some people didn't want to see it at all. And some of us had to take our time before we could even take a look at it. Yeah. Let's talk about the criminal prosecutions in, in Minnesota. They're normally handled by county attorneys. But in this case, the governor, Tim Walz, wanted you to lead the case. Right. Why do you think he did that? Well, people were calling for it. Um Two things that happened. One is that uh, the local prosecutor had handled a few cases of alleged police misconduct, cases where people thought the police, you know, operated with great brutality, and they thought that the county attorney did not respond according to law, right, and hold those people accountable. At the same time, you know, for the last number of decades, I, you know, have been someone who community turned to on a regular basis in order to seek out just outcomes. And so it was sort of a simultaneous thing. So a number of, uh, of, of state legislators, you know, 15, 16 of them sent uh, a letter saying we, we need Ellison. And then the family mm -hmm. said the same thing. And then he said, look, if I send you this case, are you going to take it? Quite honestly, I said, look, I got to talk to my staff to make sure we have capacity. And, and I have some friends who were close to me who care about my uh, political career. And they said, look, you should not take the case because if you do, you might win. And if you win, then, you know, the police federation is going to be angry with you. Mm. And if you lose, the community is going to be angry with you. So this is a lose for you. So, uh, but, you know, I thought about my mom and I thought about community. Mm. And I said, you know, to myself, you know, there's no way that if you're in a position to try to help community that you're going to say no. Mm -hmm. I couldn't guarantee the outcome, but I could guarantee the effort. 
And so we stepped up and we said, yeah, you know, we'll do it. But I did it with the understanding that what we were undertaking is very difficult. And some people are like, well, what do you mean? There's a video. It's obvious. Yeah, but we've seen video get ignored before. You know, Rodney King, uh, you know, Laquan McDonald, um, you know, Walter Scott, Eric Garner, uh, Sandra Bland. All these were on video, you know, and either nothing happened or it took like four or five years for anything to happen. So I knew that the video alone was not going to make the case. You know, we had to put together a carefully constructed case in order to get uh, the proper and fair outcome. Which is really interesting because for many of us, you know, we would think that, well, the video has got to help in this case, but you actually prepared as if there was no video. That's true. Yeah. We prepared as if there was no video. And then after we got all of our witnesses and our opening statements, closing statements, jury selection, then we said, okay, so if we use the video as an exhibit, Mm -hmm. how do we bring it in? to enhance the, the quality of our presentation. Because here's the thing, you can immunize somebody from a horrific video, but you cannot immunize somebody from a living, breathing human being on a witness stand in tears as they are describing a horrific, traumatic incident that they witnessed themselves. So that's really what we started with. I mean, you know, the, those people who stopped on that corner on, on, on May 25th, 2020, who just happened to be on that corner, going to the corner store, just happened to be there witnessing this tragic, cruel torture incident. Um, None of them knew George Floyd, not a one of them. Mm -hmm. And then all of them came back a year later, told what they saw, and none of them could get up and then off the stand without shedding tears because what they saw was just that horrific, that sad for them, and the jurors felt that. Mm. And so we added in the video to really help the jurors understand what the witnesses were watching, what they were witnessing. And uh, that is what I think uh, led to the persuasive outcome. And I want to take a a minute to just take a step back to the beginning when it comes to the count sheet. You revealed in your book that the county prosecutors who initially wrote up the count sheet included things like George Floyd's size right. and the possibility that he had ingested drugs. Right. But when you took the case over from the county prosecutors, you went back and changed the count sheet. Why did you do that? Because the title of the book is Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. Here's the reality of police violence in the United States. Tragic incidents occur uh, where people are rarely, if ever, brought to account. And if they are brought to account, usually the prosecution is conducted in a way that leads to outcomes that favor the police, right? So, and how does that happen? Well, first of all, you have to destroy the image of the victim. You know, it happens by saying that he's a druggie, he's a brutal guy, he's a big, strong guy. You know, therefore, extra force was justified against him because of his size. Mm. Uh, And then, you know, you say he had fentanyl in the system, he was resisting arrest. You just want to tarnish the image of the person. I mean, think about Trayvon Martin, 16-year-old kid, minding his own business, somebody attacks him, shoots him to death. Next thing we know, you know, they want to say that he was some sort of a bad kid. Well, wait a minute. He wasn't doing anything to anyone. He was minding his own business with Snapple and Skittles candy. Mm. Next thing you know, this grown man shoots him to death. One of the things that I knew, based on my experience, is that the image of the victim is going to get tarnished. And so we weren't going to allow the count sheet Uh, or the complaint to be used as a vehicle for that. Mm -hmm. We weren't going to do it. We're just going to say, no, the complaint is going to reflect 
the, the facts that support the criminal charge. And we're not going to put a bunch of extraneous information in there that the press can then glom onto and then use to say, oh, somehow, some way, George Floyd deserved what he got. Right. So you decide to to take this up and you assemble a team. And you say in the book, too, that your team was also dealing with the same racial reckoning that was happening yeah. with everyone at the time and that you had some tense moments. What happened? How did you how did you handle all of that? Well, look, you know, we all um, come from different walks of life and you know, we were a multiracial team, uh, even though everybody on the team was a lawyer or a paralegal or an investigator. Uh, some of us grew up in poverty and, and somehow overcame it. Some of us grew up in wealth, you know, so we kind of just, you know, walked into, you know, the life of a lawyer. Right. And those diverse set of experiences came to clash as we were working on this case. Everybody believed what happened to George Floyd was wrong, but there were some who were like, well, look, you know, uh, maybe this could happen to a white neurologist in a white suburb. <laughs> and, we, and some other folks were like, no, it couldn't. And you know it, mm -hmm. you know, and so that led to sort of like disputes and differences of opinion and you know, and then we also had other things like there was a big debate about whether or not we should put a nine year old uh, Judea Reynolds on the witness stand. And some folks were like, you know, we don't know if we should put her on because she's a child. This could be harmful to her development, you know, as a child to put her in the middle of this difficult thing. And yet I know that in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, in the 1950s, children marched for civil rights after all of their parents had been arrested and couldn't go march. And I thought to myself, it would be redemptive. It would be somehow an active agency mm. for her to participate in bringing justice to this situation. And I also wanted to show the jury that if a nine-year-old knows that what was going on with George Floyd was wrong, then how in the world does a trained police officer who's been through the academy not know it? So we, we debated that. And then we had some African-American and Puerto Rican staff members who were like, Keith, you know, you've asked us to develop a timeline. So we've literally watched dozens of hours of video and we've seen George Floyd die so many times. We can't watch it anymore, Keith. We need a break. Mm. And I said, you know what, if you guys don't want to work on the case because of this, I understand. They said, we didn't say that. <laughs> we'll just be back tomorrow. Right. You know, you know, they were impacted. Uh, these are two young female attorneys on our team who uh, the world never saw because, um, you know, they were not the trial lawyers, but they were behind the scenes. They worked just as hard as anyone else. They were very, very uh, impacted by mm. the work that they had to do every day, which is to prepare our case for trial. Uh, talking about a, a presence um, that not everybody sort of sees or isn't necessarily aware of, you were a constant presence in the courtroom, but you were silent. It, why didn't you take a more active role? Because I didn't want to be a distraction. This case was not about me. It was about George Floyd and his life. It was about the life that was taken away from him and the victimization that he had to endure. I think that if a person who's an elected public official like me sort of takes center stage presenting the case, then the issue becomes, well, how did Ellison do? Was Ellison any good? You know, did he do a good job or did he fumble? Or, and that really was not what it was all about. It had to stay on George Floyd and the suffering that he endured and the crime that he was a victim of. So that's really why I decided to not present. But I did do a lot of things on the case. I chaired every single meeting, and we had those meetings every single week. Mm -hmm. uh, I attended our subcommittee meetings on use of force and uh, medical causation. I was on every meeting regarding narrative and theme and jury selection. And I played a daily role in the case. But I was more of a manager coach 
I needed to think about the overall operation of the case. Mm. You and your team put an emphasis on hearing from witnesses during the trial. Oh, yeah. And Darnella Frazier was one of them. Who is she? She is a 17-year-old young lady uh, in high school, and she and her nine-year-old cousin happened to be going for snacks at 8 p.m., on Memorial Day, which is, uh, you know, a spring-summer holiday in the United States. And uh, they just were on their way. And then they saw this horrific scene, and they tried to use their voice to stop it. That doesn't work. So then she makes the decision to pull out her iPhone and begin to photograph what she saw. Her presence of mind really, I believe, was the indispensable event in this case because Certainly there would have been a lot of other videos. Certainly there would have been the witnesses would have been there. But the fact that she posted that video within 24 hours of her posting it, there were 2.5 million views and they, they sent people around the world. There were protests all across the United States, but also Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal. They were in London. They were in Leeds. They were in Edinburgh. They were in Paris. And so her video really was the thing that grabbed the public's attention and really forced the world to look at the reality that people have been telling the world about for a long time. And it created a crisis. Public leaders had to respond. Mm -hmm. So that's who Darnella Frazier is. Courageous young lady who did the right thing in a moment when she could have done a number of other things. She could have said, you know, it's not my business. I don't know that man. I'm just going to keep walking. She decided to stand up for her neighbor she decided to be that good Samaritan. Mm. I want to fast forward to November 22. You win your reelection to be attorney general of Minnesota yep. for a second term. But it was really close. <laughs> yeah, was pretty, did that surprise you? Uh, yeah, in a way, I have to say it did. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, my first race, I won by 100,000 votes. They told me early in the evening that I had won. The press declared victory for me at around 9 o'clock. Uh, but I didn't get the word that I had won officially until one o'clock the next day in this case. And it was less than a full percent. And, you know, I had led this important prosecution, which was well received by many people. But I guess the outcome shows that it was not well received by a lot of other people. And what my opponent said is that Keith Ellison is anti-police. I'm not anti-police. I'm actually pro-public safety. And Derek Chauvin took action to violate public safety. But this thing got politicized. And one of my big concerns and one of the reasons why I worked so hard to win, and I really did, is because I didn't want any prosecutor to not take the action that they needed to take uh, to maintain equal justice under the law because they were afraid that, yeah, if you hold this officer accountable for their criminal conduct, then you will be turned out of office. Mm. So I thought it was very important to win because I want to see other prosecutors apply equal justice to everyone, uh, whether you have a badge or not. I, I got to be honest about the I, I want to talk about the progress that followed the killing of George Floyd. Uh, many of us uh, black folks who had positions who were asked to talk at certain places or who were asked to participate in certain things or given different jobs or promoted. Many of us, when we were talking amongst ourselves, we knew we said, OK, we've got about six months of this, you know, kind of joking, but also like, mm. We'll see, you know, how long this lasts. And we are now in a place where some would say there's been a bit of a backlash yeah. to the progress that has followed the killing of George Floyd. How worried are you about that? Well, I have faith that uh, people of all colors are going to stand up for what is right and what is true. Mm -hmm. 
But that doesn't mean there won't be ebbs and flows and backlash. Like you said, no doubt about it. I'd say another part of the backlash was January 6th. Anytime you see social justice make an advance, you're going to see people who are connected to the status quo, the old status quo, fight back to preserve it, Mm -hmm. right? But here's the thing. You know, if you believe in justice, you believe in truth, you believe in democracy, you cannot be deterred by the backlash. This is where determination and grit come in. Mm -hmm. You just got to get back up and keep on making the case that we're all here and we have a right to be treated with equality and respect. So that's what I believe. And do our best to break that wheel. To break that wheel. Yes, ma'am. Keith Ellison, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for what you've done. Well, have a great one. Bye-bye. Keith Ellison is the Attorney General of Minnesota. His book is called Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. Rift from the Headlines. This is Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three rifts linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the rifts, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. You can see all the stars as you walk down Hollywood Boulevard. Some that you recognize, some that you hardly even heard of. We need to enjoy together. Come on and join together. Come on and join together with the band. Stand up, stand and unite. It's time for a general strike. That's DOA with General Strike, The Who with Join Together, and The Kinks with Celluloid Heroes. Bonnie Burks of Calgary, you guessed the headline we're looking for. Screen actors join striking screenwriters for the first time in 60 years. Congratulations, Bonnie. A Day 6 tote bag is on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. Well, I went down to the Grundy County auction Where I saw something I just had my mind told me I should proceed with caution But my heart said go ahead and make a bid on that And what cost of What is the story that connects those riffs? Email us your answer, put rift from the headlines in the subject, and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer is going to be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can listen to the clue again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. From the headlines. That's our show for this week. Day six was produced by Lori Allen, Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tesfutadese. Our intern is Rihanna Lim. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. I'm Nanaba Duncan, in for Brent Banbury. Thank you for listening to Day 6. 
Well, Bobby, we're just getting started. Oh, I love you, Ken. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.